Genesis is poetry? Well, if it is, then evolution might describe how God created the universe. Yeah, but if Genesis is history, then it's not going to fit. Is Genesis poetry this week on Creation Magazine Live? Get ready for another faith-building audio podcast brought to you by your friends at creation.com. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Richard Fangrad. And I'm Matt Bondi. This week on Creation Magazine Live, our topic is, Is Genesis Poetry? Yes, at uh, Creation Ministries International, we base our understanding of the creation account on the text of Genesis. So before we can ever begin to answer questions like, how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible, or, or how did Noah get all the animals on the ark, uh, or what about cavemen, what about ape men, what about radioisotope dating, uh, where did Cain get his wife if he wasn't able, and, and other questions like that, right at the start, we need to be absolutely sure about the type of literature that Genesis is written in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whether Genesis is history or poetry has huge implications for how we understand the world around us. It does, yeah. You know, if Genesis is poetry, then it could perhaps incorporate evolutionary views of the past with its millions of years timeline. But if Genesis is history, then there's a conflict with uh, alternate histories like evolution. That's right, yeah, because evolution is very much a historical viewpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, millions of years ago this happened and that happened, and people often think that evolution is all about science. But evolution is a perspective on history. That's yeah. really what it is. That's right. And you know, if Genesis is a record of history, well, then we're on a collision course. Right. Uh, yep. There's going to be conflict between those two histories since they both originated in completely different ways and they contradict uh, each other on pretty much every point. A lot of different points, yeah. yeah. So today we're going to look at a number of things, including a close look at what does Hebrew poetry look like and what does biblical history look like, and then we'll look at Genesis and we'll see what matches. Yeah, okay, so let's get started here. Uh, to begin, there are many different types of literature in the Bible. There's poetry, uh, as in the Psalms, but there's also parables, as in many sayings of Jesus, like the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Uh, there, Jesus clearly states that it's a parable, and he gives meaning to the various items, such as the seed and the soil. Um, then there's prophecy, as in the books of the last uh, section of the Old Testament, like Isaiah to Malachi. Uh, there are letters, as in the New Testament epistles written by Paul, Peter, John, and the others. There's biography, as in the Gospels. There's also autobiography, like in the books of Acts, where the author Luke is recording events that uh, he is actually participating in. And, of course, there's authentic historical facts as in the books of uh, First Kings, uh, First and Second Kings, and many other books in the Bible that contain accounts of events that actually took place. That's right, yeah. Before we look at the differences in the structure of poetry and history, we could start off uh, by asking how Jesus and the apostles and the other writers of the Bible and the early church fathers and the reformers and Bible scholars throughout history have taken Genesis, just to get us kind of pointed in the right direction. And we did that in years past in previous episodes. Just do a search in the media center at creation.com for shows titled What the Son of God Believed About Genesis, What the Church Fathers Believed About Genesis, and What the Reformers Believed About Genesis. You'll find those shows there. Yeah, and uh, they all understood that Genesis was a record of actual historical events. Yes. So there's a few points uh, for Genesis being history, not poetry. Right. We can also uh, hear people argue that Genesis is poetry saying things like, uh, the Bible is a book for faith and morality, not history. Or the purpose of the Genesis is to teach that God is our creator. Or Genesis teaches the theological truth of who and why, but not about how and when. Yes, yeah. The obvious answer is, 
why should we trust Genesis when it says God created if we can't trust it on details about the creation that could be observed and investigated today? Right. Uh, after all, Jesus uh, told Nicodemus, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you then believe if I speak of heavenly things? That's in John 3.12. So if Genesis can't be trusted on basic, simple, earthly things that, that we have the potential to find evidence for, like the age of the earth or a global flood, then why trust it on heavenly things like who the Creator was? Yeah, that's right. Also, if Genesis 1 uh, were merely meant to tell us that God is the Creator, then all we really needed was verse Just 1. Verse 1, that's right. <laughs> well, the other uh, writers of the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments, uh, they treat the people, events, time frames, and even the order of events as real, not just literary or theological devices. Right, yeah, and Jesus understood that Genesis describes actual historical events and real people. Yeah, the, the age and unique creation of Adam and Eve mattered to Jesus. It did, yeah. yeah. When teaching about marriage, Jesus said, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. That's in Mark 10, 6, 8. Okay, so here Jesus quoted from both Genesis chapter 127 and 224 about a real first man and a real first woman who became the real first couple, and this is the, this is the basis for marriage today. By the way, note that Jesus quoted from both chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. He saw them both as describing historical events mm -hmm. and didn't seem to think that they were contradictory as, as some people today do. Yeah, and, and if Jesus didn't think they were contradictory, the, then they're, they're not, not contradictory. contradictory. <laughs> okay, so Jesus, the writers of the Bible, uh, the church fathers, and key church figures throughout the history of the church all saw Genesis as history, not poetry. If we ask those who think Genesis is poetry, uh, something like, well, just suppose, for argument's sake, that Genesis is history. How would you expect it to look? What does biblical history look like? Yeah, so to answer this, we can turn to the undisputed historical books, such as much of Exodus, Joshua, Judges, etc. Right. And we can examine the biblical history recorded in these books. Now, Hebrew grammar experts have shown uh, that historical narratives in the Old Testament have a very distinctive verb pattern. Only the first verb in sequence of events is perfect, and in Hebrew that's called ketal. Well, the verbs that continue the narrative are imperfects, called vitals. Uh, this verb type is very common in historical books of the Old Testament. Okay, so if we apply this to Genesis 1, the first verb, bara, uh, means to create, is perfect, katal, while the subsequent verbs that move the narrative forward are imperfect, vitals. Uh, and, and you can see some examples there. So this has just the pattern expected from historical narrative. Yeah. Yeah, in Genesis chapter 1 to 11, move on seamlessly uh, with no change in style to Genesis chapters 12 to 50. Right. So no one yep. doubts that chapters 12 to 50 are intended to be read as history. So any doubts that the first 11 chapters are history don't stem from the grammar and style of the text itself. They come from considerations outside the text, such as uh, things like long age uniformitarian geology and evolutionary biology and those kind of things. Right, yeah. So what would Genesis look like if it was poetry? Hebrew poetry, uh, like the Psalms, for example, has a completely different style. The defining characteristic of Hebrew poetry isn't rhyme or meter like in English, but parallelism. That is, statements in two or more consecutive lines are related in some way. And we'll give you some examples of those. Uh, look for what's called synonymous parallelism. 
Uh, there will be one statement immediately followed by another statement saying the same thing using different words. Okay, you can see this in Psalm 19, 1 and 2, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Yes. Yep. Now, in antithetical parallelism, the first statement is followed by a statement of the opposite, like in Proverbs 28, verse 1, where it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And in verse 7, it says, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. There we go. Okay, so those are nice, clear examples of Hebrew poetry. With such clear examples, it, it ought to be easy to determine if Genesis fits yeah, that pattern. And, and, and we'll get there shortly. There are other types of parallelism that appear in Hebrew poetry. In synthetic or constructive parallelism, the first statement is extended by the next one. For example, in Psalm 24, 3 and 4, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Okay, so we see several types of parallelism that are common in Hebrew poetry. Yes, so what can we conclude? <laughs> uh, it's not hard to see the different types of parallelism in the examples of Hebrew poetry right. that we just looked yep. at, but uh, parallelism is absent from Genesis. So it doesn't match poetry. No. The exception uh, is where people are quoted, for example, in Genesis 4, 23 and 24, but those quotes stand out from the rest of Genesis. If Genesis were truly poetic, it would be using parallelism even where events and people are described. That's right. Yeah, Genesis 4, 23 and 24 reads, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now there you can see the parallelism, right? Uh, but not in the recording of the events of Genesis. Mm. Yeah. Actually, the Bible does have a poetic celebration of God's creative work uh, of Genesis, but it's in Psalms 104. Yes. Uh, so if you want to see that, uh, what a poetic account of creation looks like, that's where you'd have to look. Uh, for example, Psalm 104, verse 7 and 11 uh, illustrates parallelism perfectly. It says, at your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. And then verse 7 says, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. All right, so, so it's looking pretty much like Genesis isn't poetry, right? right? But just to drive the point home, Hebrew scholar Dr. Stephen Boyd, whose PhD is in Hebraic and Cognate Studies, has shown that the types of verbs, uh, perfect and imperfect, that are frequent in Hebrew poetry are absent from the historical books. So from his verb analysis uh, of Genesis chapters 1-1 to chapter 2 verse 3, it matches narrative, historical narrative, not poetry, with a 99.997% probability. Wow. Not 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty convincing. Pretty convincing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in addition, Genesis is peppered with and, 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 right. which characterizes yeah. historical writing. This is technically called the, the VOV, uh, often rendered as a VOV consecutive. Yeah, now advocates of the framework hypothesis, that's another idea to try to get away from the historicity of Genesis. They argue that because Genesis 2 is, they say, arranged topically rather than chronologically, so is Genesis 1. 
Therefore, they argue that days are figurative rather than, than real days. But this is like arguing that because the Gospel of, of Matthew is uh, arranged topically, not chronologically, then the Gospel of Luke is, is not arranged chronologically. <laughs> what? Exactly. <laughs> okay, it's logical and also in line with ancient Near Eastern uh, literary practice to have a historical overview followed by a recap of details about certain events already mentioned. Um, that's what we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Chapter right. 2 um, doesn't have the numbered sequence of days that chapter 1 has, so how can it determine how we view chapter 1? Right. Hebrew scholars concur that Genesis was written as history. Um, that, that's not always true for theologians or Bible scholars in general, but people who really know biblical Hebrew, for them Genesis is written as history. Uh, for example, Oxford Hebrew scholar James Barr wrote, Probably so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer, writers of Genesis 1-11, to intended to convey to their readers the ideas that, one, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. Two, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story. And three, Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguish all human and animal life except those in the ark. Mm -hmm. Professor Barr, consistent with his neo-Orthodox views, didn't actually believe in historical Genesis. Right. Uh, but he understood what the Hebrew writer intended. We've highlighted this uh, statement from Professor Barr many times, and some people have criticized us for using this quote because he didn't believe in the historicity of Genesis. Um, but that's exactly why we use his statement. Yes. You see, James Barr what, uh, was what you call a, host a hostile witness. You know, right. He had no need to try to harmonize Genesis with anything um, because he didn't see it as carrying any authority. He was free to reveal the clear intention of the author. That's right, yeah. Uh, and this contrasts with some evangelical theologians who try to retain some sense of authority without actually believing that it says much, if anything, about history. It, wrestling with the text is, is what that's called. That's <laughs> right. the way it's described. Yeah. <laughs> On another note, isn't it interesting that God chose Hebrew as the language to write the Old Testament in? Yes. Repetition or the parallelism of ideas is a feature of Hebrew poetry, and that's the reason why the Psalms can be translated into other languages and still keep most of the literary and poetic appeal. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, can you imagine if the poetic parts of the Old Testament were written in English? Yeah. I mean, English poetry is characterized by rhyme and meter, right? Uh, so, so those are usually lost when translated into other languages. Hebrew is the ideal, original, biblical language. And yeah. it's plain to see yeah. that Genesis is written as history. But why does it matter? Well, it, it does matter. Uh, the great preacher, the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, our Christian faith is based entirely upon history. It is quite unique because it is teaching which is based upon history. Our Christian faith is entirely different from our Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. It calls attention to facts, the Garden of Eden. Do you remember the history of the flood? That is a fact. That is history. Then God gave a new start. The Tower of Babel, Abraham, the facts about our Lord. And out of the historical uh, events that the Bible records come the foundational teachings about faith and morality. Yes. If the historical events the Bible records didn't actually happen, then all of Christianity comes tumbling down. History is important. It is important, yeah. For example, the Apostle Paul bases many doctrines on the sequence of historical events. For example, 
In Romans 4, Paul teaches the vital truth of justification by faith alone precisely because Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So his faith in, in Genesis 15, 6 was credited to him as righteousness before works. The, the historical sequence there is critical to understanding the doctrine of justification. Mm -hmm. And in 1 Timothy 2, Paul teaches on the roles of men and women by pointing out, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Again, without the historical sequence, this would be meaningless. Right, yeah, and the author of Hebrews teaches that Jesus' priesthood, based on the Genesis figure of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, is superior to the Levitical priesthood, and this is precisely because Abraham gave tribute to him long before Levi was born. Mm -hmm. in, in the New Testament, Luke records time, uh, time cues in history with great detail. He wrote, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, and da 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 And then he goes on, during, this, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Yeah, and, you, know, yeah. you, you can just look at all the markers of time there. Yeah. Uh, those are essentially dates. You know, it's been said that if you remove dates from history, then you're left with once upon a time. Once upon a time, <laughs> yeah. And, and Genesis includes times and years as well. In Genesis 5 and 11, we have the history of the human race, beginning with Adam, created on day six of creation week up to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people or Israel, complete with the number of years between the birth of each name in the lineage. Now, normal usage doesn't imply that the sons were born exactly on the father's birthday, so months can be added to the, to the timeline at each generation. But this means that at, at most you could add 19 years because uh, there, to the two timelines there because there's 19 generations between Adam and Abraham, so almost a year could be added at each point. But creation, or, or Adam to the flood, is 1,656 years, and, and from the flood to Abraham, another 353 years. It's no wonder that Jewish and Christian scholars all calculated a very similar creation date around 4000 BC, just count backwards from Abraham, who was born around 2000 BC, and you get to 4000 BC. Yeah, exactly. Now, we did a show last year called uh, Genesis, the Seedbed of All Christian Doctrine. Yes. Uh, and it's based on an article by the same name. Um, but if Genesis is just poetry, all of the doctrines that originate from it are on really shaky ground. Uh, but you can watch yeah. that episode here. Yeah. Uh, now, right, we covered a number of doctrines that connect to Genesis, including the doctrine of God, that's theology, the doctrine of mankind, that's anthropology, the doctrine of sin, that's hamartiology, the doctrine of salvation, that's soteriology, the doctrine of angels, that's angelology, the doctrine of the church, that's ecclesiology, and the doctrine of last things, that's eschatology. Well, is that all the ologies? There's a lot more ologies, but... Uh... <laughs> okay, now, in among those is the doctrine of salvation, but without a real historical Adam, who lived in, perfect, in a perfect world originally and in a perfect relationship with God, who then actually sinned and who God actually cursed with real physical death, there's no basis for any significance for Jesus, the perfect sinless Lamb of God, physically dying to pay for the sin of the world. That's right, yeah. And if physical death wasn't really the result of an actual sin, then phys the, the physical death of Jesus really had nothing to do with paying for actual sins. Or said another way, if Genesis is poetry, then the gospel falls apart. Mm -hmm. Hey, the bottom line is that the truth of Christian doctrines depends on the truth of the historical events that are derived from them. That's right. Yeah, so today we've looked at features of both Hebrew poetry and Hebrew narrative, 
and then looked at the structure of Genesis. Genesis is clearly written mm -hmm. as historical narrative. As we wrap up, we're going to look at a, an email that we received that relates to our subject today. Uh, it came in response to an article by Russell Grigg uh, titled, Did Adam Sin Out of Love for Eve? Okay, now Ross M. from New Zealand claimed that the Genesis account is allegory. He wrote this, This is a fundamental problem with taking Genesis 3 as an exact literal description of an event. Paul says Adam was not deceived, then why did he eat? This is a legitimate question that you have not answered. But if you allow that it is some sort of allegory, then you see that that question is simply not addressed as outside the point the story is making. The realization helps us see the real points more clearly, namely that humanity very quickly disobeyed God, the main blame attaches to Satan, and the consequences were swift and devastating. So he's suggesting that the creation account would be easier to understand if it was an allegory, yeah. uh, not an actual yeah. history. Well, Russell uh, responded, there's actually a fundamental problem with deliteralizing Genesis 3 and taking it as a, an allegory. It opens up the door to allegorizing virtually anything and everything we may not agree with in Scripture. That's right. For example, in the resurrection of Jesus, is it not uh, literal or but an allegory? If so, we're in big trouble because the Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Right. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. What about the virgin birth of Christ? Is that an allegory? Or what about miracles recorded in the Bible? Is hell an allegory? If so, what about heaven? Yeah, he continues, the importance of the account of Adam and Eve being literal and factual is that it shows how sin entered the world, that God's judgment on sin entailed pain, suffering, and death, not just for Adam and Eve, but also for all mankind. It explains how and why we are dead in trespasses and sins. It further shows the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, entered our world as a man to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, and so provide eternal life for all who believe. It also shows the reason for Jesus' dictum, you must be born again. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Russell uh, gets back to the point in the article, and he says, uh, as to why did Adam eat from the fruit? What the Genesis account tells us is that God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. Just what it was that Eve said to Adam that had such a huge effect on him, God has seen fit not to tell us. The only reason that Adam advanced for eating the fruit when questioned by God was, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it, from Genesis 3.12. Some theologians, as well as uh, readers of the website, have suggested that Adam ate out of love for Eve. Our only comment on this was to say that Adam doesn't cite his love for Eve, but he blames Eve. Yeah, that's right. The bottom line is, in order to really understand what the Bible is saying, we can't impose our own ideas on it. The text needs to be taken in the way that it's written. Uh, yes, and, and Genesis is written as history. That's uh, right. You know, many people don't like that because there's followed the whole millions of years history and the two don't fit together very well. That's right. Yeah, and, uh, and that this is part of what we talk about at Creation Ministries. We look at how science supports the history recorded there in Genesis. We'll yeah. see you next week. Creation Magazine Live is a production of Creation Ministries International, the publisher of Creation Magazine and the minds behind creation.com. If you want to chip in to support our ministry, go to creation.com donate. And thanks for listening.